Well, what a text, hey? <laughs> As we set off this morning with this, let's just acknowledge a couple of things. This is a very sensitive issue in the life of the church at the moment. For some of you, it might be a very sensitive issue. Perhaps for all of us, it carries with it deep sensitivities. So let's acknowledge that uh, and fully acknowledge that in this text, we could spend the next two weeks easy going through it. So there's going to be territory that we don't cover today and we're all just going to have to go, well, look, that's okay. If there are things that we cover today where you sort of think, oh, I wouldn't mind talking a little bit more uh, with someone about that, Paul will gladly... <laughs> enter- Is that? I know we didn't talk about that. We didn't... Have you got one of these? If you haven't, then sit near someone who you can share with. You grab that one. All right, don't expect handouts every time like this that I preach. All right. Now, as we, as we rip into this, I want to just tell you a little story. Uh, when, as many of you know, before coming here, I was in the role of General Secretary in the South Australian Synod. Now, if you've ever been to a Synod meeting, what happens at those meetings is people gather around tables in a very large room and at the front of the room in the direction that the whole thing is focused on is a table where the moderator, the general secretary and uh, a few others sit. At my first synod meeting, I'm sitting there and as people tend to do, they come in and out of interest in certain things that are being spoken at and when people are not overly interested in something, they'll do one of two things. They'll look at what's going on on their computer or their phone or they'll just look at the table up the top where the moderator is. And the whole time that I'm sitting there in the very first session, there are two women who were sitting down like that in my sort of line of sight and they were just, they had that look of, I think I know you from somewhere, but I'm not quite sure. And then at morning tea, they made a beeline for me and I'm thinking, oh, okay. And they said, look, we've been looking at you the whole time. I'm like, yeah, no joke. (laughs) A little unnerving. And they said, but we were trying to work out who it is that you remind us of. I'm like, okay, well, here comes another comparison with Hugh Jackman. (laughs) (laughs) A lot in life. And this is what they said. You remind us of a handsome version of Mr. Bean. (laughs) Where do you take that? Is it a backhanded compliment? Is it deeply offensive? (laughs) Honestly, it was one of those moments, I'm not normally lost for words, but in that moment I didn't know whether to say thanks or... eh. So I just kind of... I just kind of walked away. Just... Coffee. Now, here's the thing. I went home that night and I walked in the front door. And, uh, and Joe, who, who tends to get um, nervous on my behalf in different, you know, uh, settings, particularly when, the, you know, the first time of this, that or the other. And, uh, you know, first day of a synod in session and she's like, so how was it? And I'm like, I don't quite know how to describe to you what happened to me today. I think it's going to have serious implications for our marriage. You might not ever look at me the same. It might raise some very significant questions for you. And she said, what happened? I said, someone called me a handsome version of Mr. Bean. 
<laughs> and she took a moment and said, I can kind of see that. <laughs> I said, do you still love me? Just tell me, do you still love me? Even though you can see that. Has it changed the dynamic in our marriage? And she said, of course, I still love you. There is a part in any relationship where we might actually question, why do you love me? Now, whether it's because you can see a bit of Mr Bean in me or whether you can see a bit of this, that or the other. You're all sitting there now going, yeah, I can see, this. I can see the resemblance, can't you? Don't worry, I won't be offended much. But there is a point in any relationship, and it doesn't just happen once, it can happen over and over again where we question the mystery of why do you love me? It doesn't make sense to me sometimes that my wife loves me, particularly after we've had a little bit of a, a, a dust-up. I know, you know, it, it might not happen for you, but in our marriage, Joe and I have mastered the art of having epic blow-ups with each other, where it brings out the worst in us, and it almost turns into a game where I'll try and bring out the worst in her and she'll try and bring out the worst in me, and we always succeed in that. But then afterwards, in the wash-up of it all, it can leave us going, why do you love me? In this text, there is a mystery in here that Paul starts to to draw us into that has in part, but not fully, that question, why do you love me as the mystery? Yes, the text is about husband and wives, but even more so, we have to know that it's about Christ and the church St. Jerome said this about this particular text. I know that this analogy, obviously the husband and wife analogy, is full of ineffable promises. It requires a divine heart in its interpretation. But in the weakness of my understanding, I can only say that in the meantime, it should be interpreted as Christ in relation to the church. Nothing is greater than Christ and the church Even all that is said of Adam and Eve is to be interpreted with reference to Christ and the church. Now, sometimes the state and the substance of the church might not matter that much to us. It might be that what matters is our own congregation, but the wider life of the church, not that important. It is everything to Christ. Your congregation matters, but the whole life and health and vitality of the church matters more to Christ than anything. When we let this text talk to us, and when we uh, resist the temptation to put onto it our experience in marriage, when we hold back in putting onto this text the current atmosphere and climate within the Uniting Church. We can hear something of importance for us in this time in the life of the Uniting Church, but always for the life of the church. Now, we know that when we engage with modern texts, so whether that's stories, whether it's narratives in films or TV shows or whatnot, we hit it with a linear fashion, don't we? Beginning, middle, end. Where does the whole story get wrapped up? 
gets wrapped up at the end. No one walks out of a movie half an hour into it, unless it's obviously a really bad movie. But we wait because it builds and it builds and it gets to that point where, bang, there it is. And we're used to that, aren't we? We're used to that flow when we open a novel, we read it through and we know that it has its twists and turns, but ultimately towards that end part of the book, that's where the action is. We can't apply that kind of thinking to this particular text. You've heard Paul say a million times, you've got to know what you're reading. And then in that, let it flow out to you what is being said. So we can't read this particular text in a linear fashion. If we do read it in a linear fashion, we'll go beginning, middle and end, and we'll see at the beginning... There's reference to husband and wife. At the end, there's reference to husband and wife. So therefore, we'll put a meaning on top of it that says it's all about husband and wife. But it's far more nuanced than that. Because Paul is taking us deeper than the relationship between husband and wife. So on this uh, little handout that you've got here, there is on the front... There's references, you'll see at the end of it, it's got A, B, C, so on and so forth, and then there's a table over the back there. I don't have enough time, unfortunately, because this is not a lecture, it's a preach, to be able to talk about the structure of the text being uh, a chiasm, which allows, it's not a, that's not a brain injury, by the way, it allows for us to be able to appreciate the text a little bit like, and, if you, and those of you who have been in my lectures before know that the topic of food is never too far away, it is a bit like a sandwich, okay, where the meat is found in the middle. Unless you like to make a sandwich and have the meat on the outside, then the analogy doesn't work. But it's like we work our way into the middle, okay? So on this particular, uh, in this particular text, you'll see on the front there, the bit that's in bold is the way in which we work towards the middle and the meaning, the meat of the text is in the middle. Because if we just if we just simply read it as a linear text, what we end up running into is all sorts of problems in terms of how we understand the husband and the wife relationship. And we can read into it things that aren't there around headship, around the dominance of men because they're akin to Christ and the disempowering of women because they're akin to the church, which is less than perfect. And then all of a sudden we end up, women have to be subject to men in ways that allows for the perpetuating of unhealthy relational dynamics and so on. And the church, you know, is littered with that. But what we can do then is forget what it says in verse 21, which helps to frame it, where it says, be subject to one another out of reference for Christ. So that reverence for Christ is the starting point. It's not the domination of men over women or man over wife. So we need to, to, in a sense, let this talk to us about the importance of the relationship between Christ and the church and, in a sense, arrest the flow. Because what can happen is, if it's all about husband and wife, I will then put onto the relationship with Christ and the church my experience as husband and wife or someone else can subjectively do that and say, well, the Christ and the church relationship looks like this because this has been my experience or the experience of others. 
flip it around and we start to see what's happening here. The relationship between Christ and the church, for me as a husband, where am I getting my cues from? I'm getting my cues from how Christ treats the church. But I have to understand that first in order to understand then how to move as a husband. And it can be the same, obviously, for wives. So the union of Christ and the church is what is most important here. And we see as we work our way into the middle of the text that it is all about Christ presenting the church to himself in splendor. Anyone uh, watch a little uh, wedding that happened on the weekend? Was it 1.2 billion people? Something like that? Something? Just two. Just two. Two, two people, no billion, just two. <laughs> One of the things that I love about actually conducting weddings or even in watching the royal wedding, and yes, I did watch the royal wedding, is that moment where the bride enters, walks down the aisle, and you can see even the most stoic of fellas just turn to complete mush. It is that moment in their life where they are completely caught up in the now. There's something about the dynamic of a wedding that unlike most other events, absolutely captures people in the here and the now. And even watching the royal wedding, it was a bit like that. You know, the rest of the world could have been exploding and that sort of stuff, but people just would have been like, it's fantastic. Because it captures us in the moment. What captures us? What arrests us in that moment? There is something about the presentation of one to another and the perfection and in a sense the purity of the love that's going on there. There's no fighting. There's no conflict. There's no division. There's no raging. There's no anger. Most of the time in normal circumstances. You know, there's always exceptions to the rule. But in that wedding ceremony, there is just this beautiful love between two people that binds them together. And as they share vows, as they make promises, as they declare their intent to one another, what we hear is one saying to the other, words to the effect of all I have, I give to you. Everything I have, all of me. There is something splendid. There is a splendor in seeing two become one. And so it is with Christ and the church. Now we know when it comes to the church, the church is made up of you and me. Church is made up of people all across the world. There's an individual aspect of it and there's a collective aspect of it. So my, in a sense, personal relationship with God informs the way in which I share that collectively. And it is the same with you. So there is in this union between Christ and the church the need to acknowledge that how things are individually in our relationship with Christ matter to the way in which the splendor of the church plays out. Every person on the planet is searching for fullness in their life. The tragedy is when people stop searching for fullness 
in their life. And we can see what happens for people personally when that plays out. It's no coincidence that Jesus said that I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. Have it in all its abundance. It's also no coincidence that in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, it says, and these three things remain. At the end of the day, when you've got nothing else left, you've still got the pursuit for faith, hope, and love. And so the fullness of life, in many respects, we can testify to because our very being testifies to the fact that we all want something to believe in that's bigger than ourselves. We all look to a future where we are better off tomorrow than we are today. But more than those two things, we all seek to love and be loved. And the abundance of life comes when we are, in a sense, united and anchored in Christ because faith, hope and love is found there. We experience faith because out of a living relationship with Jesus, we see that He is the way, the truth and the life. We see hope today and into the future in Christ because we know that there is going to come a time which Paul already alludes to at the beginning of this particular epistle where he says that there will come a time in the fullness of time that Christ gathers will gather everything up into himself all things in heaven and on earth so our hope is not just in today our hope is in the fact that in Christ there is going to be something that is far beyond anything that we could comprehend in the future but we're going to be a part of that because we are in Christ. But more than all of that, more than all of that, is the profound sense that in Christ we are loved. People long to be able to hear these words. You are loved. More than anything else, those three words bring life. You are loved loved in the deepest of places that's what we long to hear individually you are loved and Christ brings these words of truth to us in ways where the spirit whispers or sometimes shouts into the very depth of our being you are loved but it can draw out from within us the question why do you love me because you know that I'm not lovable. As we look into this text, we can certainly see there are plenty of times in our own lives, or maybe I'm just, you know, doing a little bit of self-reflection among friends, but I can see there's plenty of times where I have not revered Christ. I have not esteemed and held Christ in awe because I've decided that there are other things more awesome than Christ. I've certainly not subjected myself to Christ because I would rather go and do what I want rather than what God wants. So I've refused the headship, the lordship of Christ in my life. There are plenty of times where I have made myself dirty and needed the cleansing of Christ in my life. There are certainly times where 
I have not built up the body of Christ, but contributed to the tearing down of it. And perhaps you can think of words and actions in your own life that have torn at the very fabric of the church, leaving us all to be able to think, why do you love me, God? Given the way that I treat you, why do you love me? On the collective level, we can look at a very similar relational rhythm. I want to read to you, and some of you have heard this, so you don't don't give away the answer. But I want to read to you the purposes of a particular church. You've got it in your handout. The purposes of the church are to provide for the worship of God, proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, promote Christian fellowship, nurture believers in the Christian faith, engage in mission, assist in human development and toward the improvement of human relationships, meet human need through charitable and other services and do such other things as may be required in obedience to the Holy Spirit. I don't know about you, but that's a church that I really want to be a part of. Those kinds of purposes collectively drawing people into that sort of space, you can see that there is going to be unity with Christ when those purposes are fulfilled because they're all about Christ. They're the purposes of the Uniting Church. Now, here's the part where it's going to get interesting. Because in the United Church, we don't like to necessarily reflect and look at the way in which we're not perhaps so splendid or exuding the kind of splendor that this text talks about. The greater the alignment with these purposes through what we do as the church, the greater the capacity we have to bear the image of God. How aligned are we, in your opinion, with these purposes in our practice as the church? That doesn't necessarily need to be a question that we go into a question and answer time right now, but think about that. It's absolutely true that in our collective action and decision-making as a church, we can see that there has been division, and a tearing at the fabric of the unity within the church, the way that we treat each other, and also with Christ. Minutes of meetings and records of what happened at different gatherings will certainly attest to the fact that there's been attempts to subject God and others to the agenda that we hold because we see it as more important than anything else. Church politics exists as a term for a reason. It's nothing to be celebrated. We've esteemed diversity at different points in time, even to the extreme of diversity masquerading as dysfunctional division. Even in our culture today, as the Uniting Church we can see that we love those that are like us 
and we tolerate those who are different to us. And there are times where we respect in public and disrespect in private. And none of those things contribute to the oneness, to the unity, to the richness of belonging together and being gathered together in Christ because they tear us apart. But does that matter? Is that our problem? It is and it always will be so long as we call ourselves followers of Christ because it's Christ who values the church more than anything else and our contribution or otherwise to the building up to the oneness of the church is part of our collective responsibility. Yes, we are in a season where we could ask, Christ, why do you love us as the church? Why? Are we proclaiming your gospel, Lord? Are we promoting Christian fellowship? Fellowship has the connotation of people being like this, not like this. Are we nurturing believers in the Christian faith or more in particular perspectives on marriage or other social issues? So then why? Why does Christ love us? Yes, there is a mystery to it. But we can find glimpses beyond the curtain of that mystery when we consider the cross, when we consider that the answer's already been given in part. And as Paul says, I can see dimly, I can see somewhat what I am longing for to see in fullness in that not yet time. And as our esteemed colleague, Dr. Paul Jones, wrote, in an ABC article that was published recently (laughs) on reflecting on, in all seriousness, the sermon of Bishop Michael Curry at the Royal Wedding. He wrote this, But of course, the point is that Jesus' death perfectly illustrates Curry's entire message. Since the crucifixion is an event, the event, that defines and explains true love in all its fullness, unselfish, sacrificial, redemptive. That's what the cross points to. It points us as the church. It points us as Christians. It will point people as husbands, as wives, as fathers, as brothers, as mothers, as sisters, as anyone who has a relational dynamic going on in their lives, of which we all do. It points us as to how we are to be in order to be that splendid image bearers of Christ to be able to bring the splendor of Christ to this world. And we see it through unselfishness, sacrifice that leads to the redemption of lives, the redemption and the reconciling and the renewing of relationships. It's been modeled for us on the cross 
And it's the life that we are drawn into in union with Christ. But it challenges us. And in some respects, it's prophetic for us in this time. Is our life at the moment one that is perhaps driven a bit too much by selfishness and particular agendas, even if a particular agenda dominates a landscape when the whole life of the church is in decline and drifting? Does the unselfishness of the cross speak into the selfishness of any agenda dominating the life and the health and the vitality of the church? Are we willing to put aside what it is that we want? What it is that a collective group of people want in order to look at the bigger picture of the church and see that promoted and attended to first are we in need of redeeming and renewing and reconciling as a church last year I heard Janini Gondara say the covenant between UAICC and the Uniting Church is broken words that were not said lightly but our Indigenous brothers and sisters are looking at their relationship with the Uniting Church and even they are seeing that it is in need of renewing and reconciling. This is a time for us to be able to consider as a church and as this text, I think, drives us to, is to consider what is more important right at the moment. Is our health and life and vitality more important than even conversations about same-sex marriage. And I want to suggest to you that it is, because I think it matters more to Christ that we as a church are renewed and the decline that we're going through and have been going through for a long time now is arrested and that we actually look to a new future that aligns us with the purposes that we read about and that they shouldn't be unfamiliar and that we shouldn't be surprised when we hear that these are the purposes of the Uniting Church. We should go, that's exactly what I see. And that's exactly what this world sees because they see the splendour of Christ as we fulfil these purposes as the people of God. You are loved. No matter what it is that makes up the fullness of you. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how much money you've got in the bank. It doesn't matter what your cultural background is. It doesn't matter what your sexuality is. You are loved by Christ. Whether you want to receive that or not, you know, is always up to us, isn't it? But you individually, we are loved as the church. Why? It's a mystery. It honestly is. It is a mystery. But to leave it there, I think, actually cheapens the grace and stops us from looking beyond that veil and saying, you know what? We need to love as well. Because any relationship requires two people 
to be able to love, to receive and to give, to love and be loved. And if the greatest thing that remains for any person or for us as humanity is love, then that is where we will find the fullness of life as individuals and as the church. I want to invite you to be able to, as, as Elise said before, you don't have to pray if you don't want to, but it's a time for us right now to be able to spend a moment praying for the church. And I'm not talking institution here. I'm talking the people of God. I'm talking us I'm talking about the way in which for the church in this day and age, in this nation, it's a tough gig being the church. It's a tough gig being a Christian in Australia in this day and age. But it's not hopeless. It's rich with possibilities being a Christian in this day and age. Because people are still longing for faith, hope and love. They're longing for the fullness of life. I want to ask you to pray for the renewing of the Uniting Church. Pray for the assembly meeting. Pray for proposals that are yet to come to that meeting. And that there would be great wisdom and discernment amongst the people that gather for that meeting to really hear what it is that Christ is saying not just what each is saying to the other. Is that okay if we do that? So just take a moment. If you're comfortable doing that, you can pray by yourself, pray with people around about you. You can pray in the silence of things or out loud. And then Anna's going to lead us in a song. So let's pray.